Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. For several months now, I've been complaining on Twitter and a bunch of other places that for as ubiquitous as Netflix streaming has become in our lives, I actually think it's one of the most important technology products of the last decade at least, there's actually been comparatively little journalism or scholarship about the background details of how the product actually came about. So that's why I was delighted to get acquainted with Neil Hunt, who is the chief product officer at Netflix. Since Neil has been at Netflix since 1999, not only is he the perfect person to tell the story of how Netflix streaming came about, all the technical hurdles, the strategic decisions, etc., but he can also give us the whole history of Netflix itself from basically the very beginning. It's a really fascinating story about a fascinating career at a fascinating company. Now, unfortunately, um, there was a bit of noise on the line uh, for our conversation. Throughout the episode, Neil is completely legible, or whatever the um, audio word for legibility is. Um, You can hear him all the way through, but if you find the noise in the background uh, a little annoying... I've actually gone ahead and had the episode transcribed as well. Uh, The transcription's on the website, and there's a link to the transcribed interview in the show notes. But this is truly one of the oral histories that I'm most honored to have captured for this project. So please enjoy Neil Hunt of Netflix. Neil Hunt, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Well, Brian, thanks. thanks for having me on your show. I always like to begin uh, with educational background in a really, really general way, but I, I see from your CV that you, you went ahead and got a full uh, PhD in computer science. So I'm wondering, was your intention early in your career, were you going to be a, an academic or a researcher? I sort of found myself uh, attracted to that. I uh, definitely imagine that was a good way to go. Um, Actually, I found myself pretty attracted to university life in general. It was a good way to prolong that, but that's not the way it played out. So the the first first few jobs when you came out of university, were they generally in like research labs and, and things like that? Yeah, and I managed to overlap those in a fairly unusual way. I, I got my BSc at the University of Durham, and then I stayed on there to, to do a PhD. Um, and once I finished the coursework, my professor ended up uh, signing me to a summer internship in a lab in, in Palo Alto called Sanjay Palo Alto Research. And mm. it was very much doing work that was aligned with the computer vision and image processing research that I was doing at uh, uh, what had by then become the University of Aberdeen because my professor had moved. And uh-huh. so uh, I, I got to spend uh, a summer which turned into five years at Sanjay. Um, and uh, I did eventually graduate. It took a little longer than I should have done, but uh, I came out with my PhD eventually in uh, uh, whatever that was, um, uh, 1999. No, 1991, sorry. 1991. But, uh, 19, so, 19, I, I, I came out eventually, graduated in 1989 when, when uh, Schlumberger dissolved that lab. But um, when you're at Schlumberger, that's generally in the, what, the mid-80s, early 80s? Yes, 1984 for okay. for a bunch of years. That's right. Yeah. Well, the reason that I asked and, and that... 
somebody I close was a, an oil field services company, right. but in the eighties they were getting very deeply into uh, computer and microelectronic stuff, and so they bought a bunch of companies. And, and if you remember, they bought Fairchild. This was actually the Fairchild AI lab mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was you know, became the Sanjay Palo Alto lab the, the, about the day before I joined. In fact, well, and I, I bring that up because is it tr- is it correct that you uh, met Reed Hastings at, at Schlumberger? Eh? That's correct. Yes, he uh, he was there in a different division, but we uh, we crossed paths from time to time and. Uh, um, uh, and, it, and it formed a connection that uh, he would come to uh, to tap a little later on. Right. So um, moving forward a bit in time, um, can you tell me about uh, Pure Software, what it was, and, and um, how you got involved in what you did there? Yeah. Um, after the lab, that was Slumberger Lab had dissolved. Uh, people uh, spun out to all kinds of different companies, and I went to join another little research lab, and I was working on productizing some of my research, making a, a, a software tool. Um, and uh, Reed uh, uh, contacted me. He had built a prototype of a, of a uh, software checking and validation tool that he thought might be useful. And he brought it over, and I tried it out. And uh, it, it was useful. Um, found a bunch of issues and challenges. And uh, shortly afterwards, he invited me to join his new company, and and productize that offering and and uh, uh, that was pure software and the tool was Purify which was a C and C plus plus error checking tool. So so to be clear, uh, Pure uh, Reed founded Pure and and was the CEO. Correct. That's right. So um, this is now into the early nineties. Yeah, this is nineteen ninety one, and Pure Software. Uh, quickly became profitable on that first tool, Purify, and then we added uh, a variety of additional tools. Um, and we, the, 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 the software tool space was going through a phase of consolidation at that point. And so there were a bunch of different mergers. And um, uh, over the way, we, we became Pure Atria software, and then we became Rational Software. And uh, um, uh, it's a big suite of, of software development tools offered by Rational, of which Purify was one, and uh, uh, that was that was kind of the story there. At that point, um, Reed moved on. Um, uh, I moved temporarily to Boston, which uh, um, probably wasn't my long-term future. And uh, uh, in that intervening year, um, uh, Reed and a couple of other uh, folks, Mark Randolph and and a few folk uh, started to put Netflix together. And uh, in uh, 1998, he approached me about uh, joining Netflix and uh, leading the engineering effort there. And so we, we came and talked and uh, ended up I joined Netflix in early 1999 um, when it was still a very nascent business and there were lots of things still to be uh, figured out in the future. To the to the best of your recollection, I know it's a long time ago, but do you remember what you thought of the idea of Netflix um, when when you first heard about it? Um, it it, uh, it clearly had some some big ambitions, uh, but at the time the goal was to to start uh, building a business around shipping DVDs through the mail. And DVDs, you'll remember, were only just introduced, so there was a very small installed base of DVD players in the country and the world. And uh, shipping by mail was an unusual proposition, to be sure. So it was, it was quite a speculative venture. 
So when you when you do sign on, what is what is your job description, or, or what are, what do you what do you work on first? What do you uh, join the company to do? My job description was was VP of Internet Engineering, and the the first the first mission uh, perhaps was to solve the year two thousand problem, which was upon us at that time. Um, and uh, even though this was a brand new company, we were able to find a bunch of places where two-digit year codes would have rolled over backwards and caused all kinds of trouble. Um, in the end, uh, 11 months later, uh, we didn't have a year 2000 problem, but it was it was certainly the, uh, the very first thing dumped on my plate on day one. And the, um, so the website, when you got there, had already been launched live to the public. Yes, it had. That's right. And it was at that point, it was a, a service offering uh, transactions, a la carte, uh, rentals of CVTs for a period of a week or so. Um, and uh, we found it pretty difficult to, to get consumers to uh, come back and, and uh, have a second try. Um, you know, shipping delay is, is a pretty serious impediment when you're taking a day to four days to ship a disk each way. Um, and so that, at that stage, the business was not tremendously successful. Well, right. I think we need to underline that. Um, everyone thinks of uh, Netflix as this subscription service, um, but it, it was an a la carte rental service at the beginning. Do you remember uh, what what the thinking was that, that evolved the, into the, the subscription plan that, that people would remember? Um, well, even before I joined, we were discussing how we could turn this into a recurring revenue model, um, which is what subscription is effectively. Um, and it uh, became quickly apparent that we needed to get to that really quickly. We, we were able to get customers to come try Netflix, but to get them to come back again was, was difficult. And so the, the key pieces that, that we needed to build were a, a, a model where uh, people pay for uh, a month of service um, and then they get to use it uh, a number of times during that month. And secondly, the, the queue uh, was a super important piece of the puzzle because if you, would, if you got consumers to build a list of the titles they were interested in, then you could automatically ship the next one when they returned the first one. And that was the key to providing a continuity of service and a value that, that made people engaged. And so I, I, uh, I'd like to lay just a little claim to credit for calling it the queue, which, uh, of course, uh, me as a, as a Brit, right. uh, that's a very familiar word. Right. Um, to uh, people outside of Britain uh, who are not computer scientists, queue is a pretty strange word. Is it the quay or the QEU or uh, what have you? And unfortunately, my uh, technical terminology leaked through into uh, the consumer space, which uh, I've regretted for years and years, but it is kind of a humorous anecdote. Yeah, and uh, I mean, <laughs> so the queue is obviously this, this th moving to subscriptions allows you to do the queue, allows you to collect information, what people want to watch next and what they're interested in. But it also gives you the great tagline of um, no late fees. That's right, exactly, yes. The, the, I, I think I'd put it the other way around. The, the, the queue allowed us to go to subscription, not the other way around. Without a queue, we wouldn't have had a subscription plan. But with a queue, we were able to eliminate late fees, to 
always have a DVD sitting on top of your TV ready to go. And uh, you know, the rest was history at that point. The 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 the, the business business began to to grow and accumulate subscribers, and and uh, the the, uh, the revenue started to increase. Things were looking great. And this was we we uh, we worked on this. I, I joined in '99. We started work on subscription pretty quickly, um, and uh, by the fall of '99, um, we were out with uh, with the uh, the subscription plan. And you also uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you also start re- working really early on on things like pers- personalization and and algorithms to help uh, recommend movies and things like that, right? That's correct. Yeah, uh, you, you've got to remember again that in 1999, the the uh, the library of titles on DVD was measured in the dozens, not the thousands. Um, but very quickly, it became apparent that uh, giving people a tool to find the next interesting thing to watch was going to be important for uh, uh, subscriber satisfaction, member satisfaction, uh, but also um, the. Uh, the habit was for people to to come in and search for the newest release, and we would uh, rush to the store and buy a whole load of copies of the new release, whatever it was. Uh, Dust Boot was one of them. Was one of the first re- new releases after I joined the the, the uh, um, uh, submarine the, movie. The, the, yeah, the, the submarine movie. The correct. U-boat movie. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Which was chiefly distinguished by the fact that uh, they printed the side one, side two on the wrong side of the desk, and it really wasn't clear. So you put the thing in, and then the, the thing started right in the middle of a really intense uh, depth-charging scene with rivets popping off and explosions. Why do, why, and, do and I have, why do I have a memory of that? Like, did I actually watch that? The, I, <laughs> you literally just rang a bell in my head. I feel like that happened to me. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I, it probably did. And then about 10 minutes in, you realize, no, this isn't the start of the DVD. And you pull it out, and then it's, yeah, okay. Let's flip it over, and then it's constant and proper place. Oh, <laughs> there was so much broken stuff in those days. Well, oh. uh, anyway. Yeah, go on. Yeah, so we, 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 we needed to figure out a way that we weren't shipping uh, the newest copies of the newest titles. Uh, to our members and then having them come back and sit on the shelf and nobody else ever wanted to watch them. And so the idea of, of recommending stuff that they might not immediately have in mind, but which they wanted to see, maybe uh, all the titles, historic titles, was going to be an important piece to uh, making the business sustainable. If if we could rent each title uh, 10 or 20 times, it would become a sustainable business. If we were buying a title for $20 and renting it for part of a subscription, it was not going to float for very long. So let me let me just underline this again. So the, the recommendation uh, engine is obviously an, uh, something to help users, uh, you know, find movies they might want to watch, but also on your side of it, it's a solution to inventory issues and, and, and profitability issues. That's correct. Yeah, we, we, we called it the percent new problem, that if 80% of what we shipped out of the door was a brand new disc, then uh, it clearly was going to be very expensive to run this business. And, and the, the recommendations was a way to solve that in a win-win way. To, to nudge people into the long tail. Correct. So I'm going to just throw this in here real quick, just... Um... You know, like we said, you joined in 99. That's the height of the dot-com bubble. Uh, 2000, the bubble bursts. Um, I know you can only speak for yourself, but you're only there about a year, maybe a year and a half um, when when the bubble bursts. 
Uh, you can only speak for yourself, but uh, w- were you ever concerned that, oh, maybe we're one of these dot-com companies that are going to go under, we're not going to make it? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the world is pretty strange. The, the thing that was – it's a, a, a little anecdote that, that probably comes from, from a, a few months later, but that's, that's quite relevant. Please. I feel like um, uh, Reed and the management of Netflix has always had in mind um, building a sustainable business from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, hence our focus on uh, solving the, the new disk shipping problem, um, even though – all of our peer companies at the time were, were raising piles of cheap money and using it to to fund uh, growth and gaining eyeballs and market share at almost any cost. And and I remember a board meeting where the, the board members were puzzled as to why we weren't uh, spending money faster and growing faster, um, as opposed to trying to solve the problems of, of making the thing profitable. And within months, that kind of turned on its head. And the fact that we had gotten reasonably close to profitability um, meant that we were able to raise one more round um, and uh, eke that out. Um, it was touch and go, but we were able to to get through to profitability and growth in spite of the fact that the uh, the market for internet businesses at that point was, was uh, had slipped to extremely negative. Well, and um, you were one of the first, or, or possibly the first, uh, internet company to to IPO after uh, the bubble burst. So, yeah, you, you, you managed to thread that needle. Yeah, it, that's, as with all of these things, there's a good measure of luck. But luck favors the, the prepared mind, the prepared business, and and uh, we were fortunate that uh, we had approached it with, with kind of a sound business idea in mind. Um, before we uh, get to what we came here to talk about the streaming stuff, I wondered um, if you wanted to say a little bit about the the competition with Blockbuster. I mean, this is one of those classic, you know, Harvard Business School uh, disruption from the internet sort of stories. Um, Blockbuster ignored you guys for a, a while, enough time for you to get traction. But once they um, once Block, Blockbuster came online. Um, again, from your perspective, speaking for yourself, like um, how how worried were you uh, about competition from them and competition from Walmart and people like that? The the blockbuster was really the third wave of competition. The, the first wave was Walmart, um, and so uh, and the second wave was Amazon. So we we kind of faced a uh, a showdown with the world's biggest retailer, followed by the world's biggest e-tailer. Uh, and then Blockbuster came in as the world's biggest video renter. Um, but by that time, we had learned, I think, the the, the benefit and virtue of, of being uh, extremely focused on uh, on our customers, on delivering the value that, that they needed and required. And I think we, what we saw with, with Walmart was that uh, um, they didn't really have the same level of, of focus and attention. And while it spooked the the public markets and the stock price was was in the toilet for a while, the uh, the actual outcome really was never particularly in doubt. Um, we, we were able to keep growing, um, and, and we were able to be successful competing against Walmart. And then Amazon, I think, a little more smartly decided to compete outside the U.S. when they launched Love Film in the U.K., 
Right, um, they never actually uh, launched yeah. the, in the U.S. A, a DVD rental service. That's correct. Okay. Um, and then Blockbuster finally woke up that, that uh, this was a potential uh, threat to their business, and uh, um, they proceeded to copy our model pretty much exactly um, and launched that out at a slightly lower price, and we ended up uh, competing on, on price for a bit. They, uh, they goaded us into... Uh, go to the perhaps wrong word. They stimulated us into thinking about tiers of service. So we we would offer a um, uh, a one disc, a two disc, and a three disc plan at different price points, so that we could have a low price point to compete. Um, and, and and that was uh, an important outcome. But at the end of the day, we it's, it's fascinating. We uh, we we had. Uh, uh, lots of meetings where we debated all the ways we could respond to the blockbuster threat, and we charted all kinds of new projects and initiatives that we were going to do. And in the end, it amounted to a great deal of running around and not much outcome. Um, and the thing that really matters was was sticking to the core and delivering a great service and, and a, a, a better performance than, than blockbuster was able to do. And so... Uh, I think that the learning that we took away from that was that more important to focus on our customers and, and being great and making a great business than worrying about what the competitors are up to. Um, and, and, and you know, eventually, as history shows, uh, Blockbuster overextended themselves and, and uh, went bankrupt. And uh, uh, you know, I think it was it, in, in that case it was it was responding a little too late and then not really being able to put enough effort and focus on it to uh, catch up with with the the lead and the advantage that we had. Um, so it, it sounds like a bit of a David and a Goliath story, but in the end of the day, I think it's it's uh, it's probably not that uncommon for the incumbent to uh, fail to notice the challenger until it's too late to effectively respond. And so this is this is a, a story that you see uh, repeated from time to time. Well, you know, it, it, it's probably not that uncommon, but what I would say is uncommon is that, and this is going to lead us into streaming, is that it's around 2007 to 2009 that, that Blockbuster is really vanquished and, and, and um, you, you guys have proven your model and, and you're on top. At that exact same moment is when you start to move into this new business model. So what I would what I would say is is rare is you know you would expect you guys would maybe rest on your laurels for a bit and 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 say we won and celebrate for a bit, but you're immediately moving into this new business model. Yes, that's correct. And and the the interesting challenge here, of course, is it's a pretty different business um, that serves the needs of a somewhat different customer base that doesn't necessarily overlap with the first one. And I think we had, we had learned um, from the Blockbuster experience that, that focused on your, your customers, your growth customers, your new customers is, is an important thing. And so I think we, we pivoted pretty hard to really pay attention and focus on the streaming business. And, and yes, initially it was pretty nascent and was, it was uh, we had to piggyback it on top of our DVD rental subscription business because we were unable to put together a library of sufficiently compelling content to be a standalone. Well, business. you know what? You know what? Let's um, hold on. I, I apologize yeah. for cutting in here. Let's let's get into streaming with a couple uh, with two questions. First of all, um, when the company was conceived, you know, Reed 
has several times given this quote that they he didn't call the company DVD by mail. He called it Netflix. Um, was the idea always eventually to do delivery of a video over the internet? Sure. Um, and and uh, when you look back at, at broadband plans and pricing back in uh, 1999, 2000, 2001, that seemed like a, a pretty... Uh, out there suggestion. Mm-hmm. And as the years went by, it became more and more tractable until by 2007, it was it was quite feasible. Um, that was about the time that, that YouTube started out too, doing uh, streaming um, uh, consumer-generated, user-generated okay, video. Okay, I was, um, that was going to so be... We had, we had that as a parallel. Yeah. I was going to say that was my second question. Was there some moment or catalyst, perhaps YouTube, um, that was the tipping point that, that caused you guys to say, okay, now is the moment uh, to jump in and, and try to make streaming happen? Um, actually, I would say it was it was uh, concurrent, but no, we had started working on internet delivery um, actually a couple of years before, three years, I think, before uh, YouTube came on the scene. Um, and it was a bit stop and start. And at the time, uh, internet speeds were far too low, and video compression was far too poor for real-time delivery. And so we were looking at something much closer to the DVD model of trickle it down overnight and then have it stored on a disc on a box. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became pretty clear that that was not going to be a, a very interesting model. And uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure whether we were thinking about streaming before YouTube or YouTube helped us to think about that. So probably at the same time, we, we gave up on the on the disk storage model and started to think about uh, uh, real-time delivery um, and, and streaming to customers as they, uh, as, as they were watching. And so are, you're thinking of, of set-top boxes? I know, obviously, Roku sort of incubated inside Netflix. Is that Were those some of the early, early projects that you're talking about? No, we it was it was a lot before Roku. It was in like two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay, we started prototyping a box that, if you remember, TiVo was was uh, right uh, the hot thing about then, and that was a TV receiver with a disk drive. And we were working with some uh, some contract manufacturers who were building similar boxes, you know, with a video processor and a hard disk. And and we were uh, cobbling together some software to be able to work with a thing like that. Um, so that was that was clearly a, an early start in the wrong direction that didn't go anywhere. And then in the height of competition with Blockbuster, we canceled all of those projects in favor of just winning. Um, and then when Blockbuster finally uh, diminished as, a, as an existential threat, we were able to get back. And at that point, it was like, okay, we'll, we'll skip those things, go straight to streaming. Okay, so uh, this is around in 2007, I know, is when the first... I, I think streaming products come to market. So when do you think that you start working on it um, in earnest? Oh, it was, uh, it was probably uh, um, early 2006, okay. something like that. We, we kind of had a model. And there were there, and, were, uh, there were so many other streaming experiments around that time, like movie being uh, movie link, you, I, you know, you unbox or something. I can't even, there was a, dozens of them. Um, and, and iTunes video rental starts to come out uh, at, around the same time. So um, what is it that makes you guys want to go into this crowded field that seemingly no one had had success with before? 
Um, I, I don't recall it, it being as crowded as, as, as you were painting now. Mm. Um, it, it feels to me like uh, a lot of those things are a bit later. There was the um, the, the ill-fated uh, Enron project right. um, uh, to, quote, stream across uh, uh, fiber networks that they would own and deploy, which, which in retrospect seems awfully quaint. Um, <laughs> Uh, of course, we all know what happened to Enron. Right. Um, but uh, that that was the that was maybe the thing that that I recall as being um, most uh, present in our minds as we thought about streaming. Like, well, what is this thing, and how can this possibly work? And the economics are just going to be completely crazy. And uh, yeah. Anyway, that was uh, that was a, that was a novelty. But I, as far as the streaming was concerned, YouTube demonstrated the. The feasibility, the technology, and and uh, there really there wasn't a lot, but it was uh, it, it, when iTunes came along. You remember that it was a download model; it was not a streaming model. Right. Oh, that's and for true. For the first several years, you pressed the button and you waited several hours while the thing trickled down to your desk on your on your laptop or your um, your device. You know what? You're um, right because I'm, I'm very thinking, far from streaming. I'm thinking of the Apple TV model, not the original iTunes model. You're right about that. Yeah, even the Apple TV model when the Apple TV first came out, that, that was a. I think I'm right. That was that had a disc in it. You press the button and you waited, and, and it, it might take 20 minutes to buffer mm-hmm. enough to be able to 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 start watching. Okay, so that's that's a perfect entree into what are what are the issues that you're you guys are having to 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 deal with. Um, you know, ranging from things like uh, bandwidth, the the technical issues of like audiovisual quality and things like that. So um, in, in around 2006, you said, 2007, you've decided that you want to do a streaming product. And what are the, what are the roadblocks and what are the problems that you, you guys have to solve? Well, the good news is that there are a bunch of, of off-the-shelf pieces that we can assemble to make this uh, feel more real. Um, we were able to go to uh, Windows Media Player that was a uh, a Windows app um, that plays media from your machine, um, and we wrapped that in a um, in a in a wrapper that basically managed the streaming, um, dynamically assembled a, a video file on your disk, and then pointed Windows Media Player at it to play the content. Um, Windows Media Player also has Windows Media DRM that enabled us to satisfy studio requirements that, that this must be a vehicle for piracy for a, a source of stolen copies, that, you know, that we would protect the content that went out. Um, and so we were able to piggyback on top of that. Um, and then we were able to leverage um, Akamai as a, uh, as a CDN I think the key insight that, that we had um, was that we chose to use um, HTTP to deliver a, a file um, rather than to use um, uh, RTP or one of these other streaming protocols. Mm-hmm. And we stayed away from all of the stuff that, that was being developed at the time in terms of a smart streaming uh, protocols and smart streaming engines um, where the the server was an integral part of, of delivering the content and where uh, user firewalls and user networks 
uh, had to be properly configured to listen to a new protocol. By sticking with HTTP, we were leveraging the basic capabilities that deliver a web page in a way that, that uh, would seamlessly work almost everywhere. So we put together those pieces, and uh, I would say the, the technology that we built was, was uh, there was a lot of tape and bailing wire, and it was pretty flaky, but it was good enough to say this is, this is an interesting possibility. Um, the, the flip side of this is that the content team um, was uh, trying to assemble a library of, of content to stream. And that was extremely difficult because of the way uh, video licensing works. Um, but, uh, essentially, we're competing against terrestrial broadcasters to acquire the rights to a title. And that can be pretty expensive, uh, especially for a small business with just a handful of customers. And so it was very difficult to get uh, uh, compelling content, certainly nothing that was new or current. It was all extreme, long-tail, deep catalog stuff at the time. And uh, it was a good supplement to the DVD wrestle business. We would be able to provide people with something to watch if they happened to run out of DVDs at home. Um, and they could at least uh, uh, click and watch. They could browse catalog, pick something interesting, say, that's what I want to see, click the button and have it start playing within a few seconds and, and go through it. So it was, it was a great technology demo. It was a great introduction to some of the challenges of building a content library, um, but it got us off the ground. Um, right. So that that first product is is you know on on your computer desktop. Um, how soon into that do you start to um, go out to other platforms? I think it was LG. Maybe I'm wrong about that. It was maybe the first um, uh, consumer electronics partnership? But then you know things like Xbox. Uh, PS3, things like that. So do you start working on that right away because you realize, um, you know, only so many people are going to want to watch on, on their desktop? The, the chronology here is that, is that almost as soon as we had launched, we were, we were into hardware. Hmm. Um, and we, we started to build the thing that became the Roku platform, uh, the Roku box, mm-hmm. um, uh, way back in 2007. And to put a lot of effort into that. Um, Partway through, uh, I think most of the way through that development effort, um, we also engaged with uh, uh, Microsoft Xbox team. um, And we started working on an app for the Xbox 360. Um, And and, uh, in the end, I think the, if I have it right, I think the Roku box was first out. um, uh, and it ended up being Roku, the, the, the standalone company, rather than a box from Netflix. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, we realized that uh, we were going to want to work with all of the CE manufacturers and other partners. The, the Xbox project had demonstrated the appeal. Um, and so we, we thought that would be a lot easier if we didn't have our own uh, competing hardware solution in-house. And so by, by uh, uh, setting up Roku as a standalone entity and freeing them up to, to go pursue uh, competing uh, streaming uh, opportunities, um, we paved the path for working with Xbox, working with Sony PlayStation, and as you say, working with LG and Samsung. So that's interesting. I just want to underline that again. The reason you spin off Roku is because then you can be sort of uh, a neutral partner to all of these other hardware manufacturers. We're not doing hardware in-house. 
uh, we're just giving you this platform and you can put it on your hardware, and so that's why you divest of, of Roku. That's essentially right, yeah. So uh, is what's the big breakthrough? Maybe that's not, not what I want to ask, but was Xbox and, and things like that, those were the first big breakthroughs even before we get into the era of, of all these smart TVs that start coming out? Oh, for sure. Smart TVs were still way down the road. Um, so we, we we did the Xbox thing. It, it was an interesting quote that um, um, uh, there were a bunch of things about the Xbox deal that were a little difficult. One of them was an exclusivity piece. And so um, we did start working with Sony for their PlayStation platform. Uh, but Microsoft had a year of complete exclusivity. Um, and so we, we didn't... Uh, uh, we didn't get to Sony until a year later, and then the next year they had a, a an exclusivity on a on a, a game console app, and so we actually uh, we built a BT Java application on a uh, on a Blu-ray disc. And your your uh, listeners may not remember that, but um, Blu-rays had just about replaced DVDs by uh, kind of the late 2000s. And the content protection scheme was based on actually having a, um, a full-up Java implementation that was able to execute Java code on the on the Blu-ray disk. And in fact, it was that BD Java that was the authoring um, environment for all of the the menuing and setup and control of the Blu-ray disk still is. And and we actually in a in a uh, an amazing uh, effort, we were able to build a complete streaming player um, using the BD Java um, and delivering it on a disk uh, to a Sony PlayStation. And so for the second year, we actually uh, had PlayStation streaming, but not from a native app, but from a, a, a piece of code delivered on a plastic disk, which is an interesting I think irony. I, I think I remember that too, actually. <laughs> um, what was it? Along the way, we, we, did, we, we took the... We took the the, the, the software platform that we had developed um, uh, before Roku was spun out, and we generalized that into an SDK. Um, I, I should put an asterisk on that. That generalization took years and is still ongoing at some level, but we, we were able to take that and, and deliver it to um, uh, LG and Samsung. Uh, but not for smart TVs. It was for Blu-ray players at the time. Um, smart TVs were still a couple of years in the future, and Blu-ray players had uh, a, uh, a, a processor that was fast enough to be able to do streaming. And so it was a, a credible place to go build a streaming app. And that's what we did. Well, I mean... Um, another thing you have to... Go ahead, sorry. Another thing you have to remember here is that... Uh, the capabilities of, of the early Roku box um, and of the LG and Samsung players were uh, somewhat limited. And so we didn't actually build a uh, what I would call a discovery and selection UI. Um, we leveraged the queue concept that all of our DVD members were familiar with. And we allowed you to build a list of the titles you might be interested in. And then the UI on the LG Blu-ray player and the Samsung Blu-ray player just basically showed one long list of titles, which were things that you had added to your streaming queue, streaming list. Um, and so it was a very, very 
simple, dumb user interface, but it was enough to get going and, and begin to make things happen. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that we started to add um, a real choosing and selection, discovery and selection UI on top of that. And then that's probably when you're into the smart TV era and things like that. That's right. And, and uh, you know, obviously we, we grew beyond LG and Samsung into right. most of the manufacturers, uh, Blu-ray disc players, and then the disc player and the TV are actually not that different when you dig inside. It's a pretty similar chip inside, and uh, as soon as the TVs uh, started to add uh, uh, network in meaningful numbers, and, and we pushed hard to have them add Wi-Fi. There was a lot of skepticism at the time that, that Wi-Fi would actually work for streaming, um, and often didn't. Um, it's hard to imagine today where wireless is, Wi-Fi is, is super robust and, mm -hmm. and generally works pretty well. But uh, um, the early Blu-ray players and smart TVs uh, typically had a wired connection and no Wi-Fi, and you had to run a wire out to your TV, which was an unusual thing for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we got past that, eventually got uh, good Wi-Fi in these boxes and, and made it work well. Well, I want to I want to um, point out for the listeners uh, an interesting parallel here, uh, which I'm sure you're aware of. But back in the back in the DVD days, DVD by mail days, um, Netflix grew by as as DVD is a technology that's being adopted, and people are buying DVD players for the first time. One strategy that Netflix used heavily was you get a new DVD player inside the box comes these coupons to try out Netflix. So it's almost serendipitous that, again, as this universe of devices starts to come out, as these smart TVs start to come out, you sort of pursue the same strategy of you've got this new $3,000 smart TV. What are you going to do with it? Well, look, Netflix is there. That's right. You, you've, you've kind of rewound the clock by a bunch of years. In fact, it, yeah. was, uh, it, it was an innovation from the very earliest attempts to market the DVD service in early 2000-2001 that we, we came up with the idea of, I shouldn't say we, I, was, I wasn't anything to do with marketing at that point. This was uh, um, uh, Leslie Kilgore, her predecessor, and they came up with uh, the idea of, of red tickets in the box that, that were good for uh, three or five DVD rentals. And then we had the painful problem when we introduced streaming of, of uh, uh, converting that into uh, you know that, that, that it says it says three rentals. It actually means a month of free service, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was a little bit of uh, hand waving to to cover the slight difference in the service we were trying to do. But it was obviously a better deal for consumers. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, yes, that was that became um, uh, and streaming, um, and and the, the the red ticket morphed into other other things. And, and in many ways, we continue that same partner marketing plan of, of uh, including uh, some period of, of uh, free subscription in with the purchase of new devices, and, and that's been a hugely effective vehicle. You know what? Uh, it occurs to me that we do need to back up for a second. When you first launched streaming, uh, what is the uptake like that you notice? Like how quickly do you see existing Netflix users uh, using streaming? Um. That's a great question. I, I don't have numbers at my fingertips, but it was pretty slow at first. Mm, um, mm. This was this was a fringe activity that was relevant to uh, uh, to eager consumers, early adopters who had um, superior home networking and who had the 
the technical savvy to be able to, uh, you know, download our app or to go buy a, a Roku box or, or find a, a high-end DVD player which happened to have an app on it. And these were things that, that took off slowly. Um, and, the, you know, the content was not strong at first. It took a while to start building a strong content library. So the content library needs to catch up the actual installed base of, of devices that can do the streaming needs to catch up. So it's it's not an overnight thing. That's right. And and there was a lot of uh, a lot of hard work that, that Reed and others went through in, in sort of selling the story on both sides, you know, to to the hardware manufacturers that's gonna be huge and you should work with us because it's gonna be a really big piece. And to the uh, to the content owners that, that you should sell us content because we, we're going to be able to deliver it effectively. And, and, you know, neither side was there for the other um, when we started. And so it was a lot of um, uh, building the credibility of both sides of the business to make it go. But uh, it, it happened in the rest of the history. Um, let's go back to also uh, some of the technical details, um, you know, uh, famously um you you guys start using uh aws very early on just some of the once once it does start to take off we'll fast forward to that so once it starts to become a thing that uh you know a certain percentage of users are using and then it's so popular that it takes over a certain percentage of all internet traffic um so so just the the scalability issues the bandwidth issues any of those things that you want to go into or stories you want to tell about that so there was there was a, a an interesting moment in the, the summer of I think 2008 mm-hmm. when uh, uh, it was still primarily a DVD business, um, uh, and the, the distinction matters because as a DVD business, the value delivered to consumers is through the DVDs they have at home. And if the website is not up, well, they can come back tomorrow and order a new disc for the next day. And that's, that's not a, an egregious failure. Um, but uh, at that point, streaming was beginning to become interesting. And we knew it was going to be the future. And at that point, we had a, a database hardware failure that corrupted the, the main database that we ran on. Mm. And uh, it, was, uh, it was an ugly mess. It, it took... Uh, uh, most of the day to get the, the consumer-facing website back live again, and it took several days to get a logistics system back up and going again. And I'd say a lot of people tore out a lot of hair and lost a lot of sleep during those three days. But it became very clear that, that uh, as a streaming business, that kind of downtime was not acceptable, that, that we needed to have a much higher availability and that we were going to need to re-architect our systems to have redundancy and failover and all of the things that are necessary for that kind of uh, improved uptime. And we could look at uh, uh, building a duplicate data center and putting the uh, Oracle and Java stuff in it that we had at that point. But we could uh, look for something completely different. And Amazon had just launched AWS at the time. And so we... Uh, we concluded uh, after a lot of discussion that, that yeah, if we're going to rebuild for redundancy and failover, we should do it in the, the newest architecture that's available and not uh, try to build on our legacy stuff. And so we 
uh, we chose to to start from scratch and move our systems over to AWS piece by piece, starting in 2008. And that was a an odyssey that ended up taking us about eight years, four years for the majority of it, and eight years to clean up the last pieces and unplug our data center. And uh, yeah, lots of lots of interesting stories along the way. The the key one is that we recognized immediately that that to do a forklift of our legacy systems into AWS was not going to get us what we wanted. We needed to re-architect with the structure of AWS in mind. Um, And we needed to switch to things like NoSQL databases instead of trying to use bigger, bigger Oracle installations. And we needed to switch to a microservices architecture instead of a sort of monolithic client uh, 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 server architecture attached to the Oracle database. And uh, in order to do that, we we uh, we sort of we wondered about uh, do we do we try to build a, a version of the complete service top to bottom, um, uh, and then bring that up in AWS um, in parallel with the, the current stuff, and then shift customers over a few at a time. Or instead, do we try to take this feature by feature and implement portions of our system in AWS um, while leaving portions uh, left back in the legacy architecture? And it was that latter approach that we chose. Um, I think it was the right decision. Um, I think it got us a lot more experience with how to work with AWS and how to use the services um, while deferring uh, kind of finishing up everything in order to get anything going at all. And, and that was, yeah, I think, a, a really key decision. One of the implications, though, is that we spent months building scaffolding uh, that went to real-time replication of our Oracle database in our legacy data center mm-hmm. uh, to the databases we were trying to use inside AWS that would, that would copy data backward and forward in various different ways. And we called this phase the phase of Roman rising. Um, certainly, we had a lot of uh, challenges and frustrations with keeping that scaffolding robust and stable. Mm. But in the end, it enabled us to move um, page by page and feature by feature from the legacy data center into AWS and gradually build and, and, and gain confidence that this is the right way to go and then move faster and faster until it's all done. There was a... A critical moment there right after, actually, it was right before um, the, the iPhone 3 uh, launched. And iPhone 3, you'll recall, was the first iPhone that had third-party apps available. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Apple had uh, invited us to build a streaming app for the iPhone 3. But in true Apple form, they had uh, only given us uh, about a month's notice of the of the what they wanted us to do. And so we, we rushed to build the, the iPhone app. The app was actually pretty easy, uh, but what would it talk to? We needed to uh, to build capabilities to, uh, to serve uh, user interface and uh, the streaming content uh, to the iPhone. And uh, we uh, debated extensively for a, a couple of days, and then we decided that Really, the only way forward here was to build this in AWS. We didn't have time to build a backup version in our legacy data center. And so we were 
faced with a, a big launch at, at Apple WWDC, um, uh, predicated on our new AWS architecture working well. It was certainly a bit of a nail-biting moment for us, but it was it was a success, <laughs> and it gave us great confidence that uh, AWS was the right way forward. You and know, from then on, everything we built was everything new we built was AWS only. I, that was actually going to be one of my questions because here you, you guys are, are originally trying to build for for set-top devices for for TVs and things like that. So did did the whole uh, mobile viewing and and you know the app economy did, did that all kind of take you by surprise a bit? Um, I think it was. It was pretty clear that these were going to be good devices, but the uh, certainly the idea that that that, that uh, the iPhone was going to have third-party apps on it was uh, wasn't obvious until it was obvious until it was you know, kind of made public. Or or was and it? I'm, I'm trying to remember the timing here. There was there was a there was a tablet too, and I think I think maybe it was a tablet that was that was you know the first iPad was the the first device that we got onto, and then the iPhone followed a few months later. I mean, cause um, was it even obvious to you guys uh, that people would want to stream over a tiny screen, a handheld screen? <laughs> it's still not obvious at some level. <laughs> um, there's, 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 uh, there's some differences in behavior and, and how people use a small screen versus a big screen. And certainly... What um, are those? What are those? Uh, oh, yeah. if you're watching on a TV you tend to ignore the phone. If you're watching on the phone, the phone call comes in, you get interrupted. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, we end up with, with shorter viewing sessions. Um, and, and I think that, that uh, somewhat influences the kind of content that's content that people watch on phones, just content that, that's easy to stop and start. And then nowadays, of course, we've, uh, you know, fast forward many years into the future, we've, we've uh, implemented downloading on phones. And so, uh, you know, people are now taking it with them on planes and on trains and on long commutes and and uh, in parts of the world where uh, there isn't a uh, you know, stable home connection sometimes. So, uh, you know, certainly the, the, the world and the environment has changed a bunch and, they, and they, the phone is a nice complement to a smart TV as a way to watch content. Uh, one more technical question and then we'll try to bring it uh, into the present day a bit. Um... You guys, I feel like, have always been like really at the forefront of pushing. So you you, you got streaming to work in the in a big way. You were the the first ones to really you know uh, crack that nut. But you also you, you were always pushing like audio visual standards as well. Like you know you pushing HD and then moving into 4K. And so was that always a goal as well? Where it's not just enough to to get people. Uh, movies on demand. We have to get them m- movies that are as high quality as they could get from from any piece of content. Um, I would say it was it was in many ways a reaction to uh, YouTube as, as being seen as as uh, uh, lower quality video. Um, ah, I think we yeah. we worried about being hard with the same brush that, that uh, you know Netflix streaming is an inferior version and so we wanted to get out in front and say you know we could deliver the best quality AV we can beat DVDs we can beat Blu-rays we can be first to market with 4K we can be uh, a, a leader with high dynamic range um, 
that's you know that the the big advantage of delivering over the internet is that you don't have to upgrade an entire infrastructure in order to be able to deliver a new format. And so we've been able to be uh, uh, pushing the, the the lead in a lot of these things, and it's it's been kind of fun working with. Now, of course, we're into original content, so working with the the big name uh, producers and directors to to put this together in the highest quality formats available. That's pretty exciting. Well, before we get to uh, the original content era, I I have to ask about Quickster. <laughs> Um, we don't have to spend an hour on it or even uh, two, two minutes, but just um, whatever you want to say about the, the thinking going into that, but maybe more importantly, the lesson that you guys learned from, from that experience. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, in, in the Blockbuster fight, we had learned the importance of focusing on our new customers on the future. And uh, at that point, um, we were a business that was delivering um, uh, PVTs and streaming on the same subscription, and we were we were charging eight dollars for the DVDs and ten dollars for the combined plan, and we were spending um, probably comparable amounts of money licensing streaming content as we were buying DVDs, and so clearly at, at an eight plus two. Uh, didn't work. We needed to uh, start to collect revenue for the streaming plan that was commensurate with the, the quality of the content that was available. But by this time, it was much, much better. Um, and so we needed to separate them into two plans and let people choose either DVD or streaming or both and charge a real amount of money for the streaming. And we were so eager not to make the mistake that most businesses do of ignoring the the new business in favor of the legacy business, that we were a bit too bold and a bit too eager to, to make the switch over. And so we, we kind of steamed into it, and we certainly disappointed on our side a bunch of customers with, with some heavy-handed pricing stuff. We could have done somewhat better, I think, by... Uh, uh, looking to the future customer and, and being a bit more generous with the, the pre-existing customers, the customers who got us where, where we were going. But uh, in the end, I, I, I look at the Quickster episode not as a, uh, a disaster that we narrowly avoided, but as a critical business transition, a, a discontinuity that we needed to go through um, that was going to be painful no matter how we did it. Um, we didn't do it perfectly, but we survived and we did accomplish the the, the mission of, of ending up with a team that was dedicated and focused on streaming um, and was able to grow the streaming business. And, and today, DVD.com is, is a separate division and a separate building. Um, they're focused on the DVD customers, uh, doing very nicely. Um, and the streaming business is focused on the streaming customers. And uh, because they're different and non-overlapping, um, well, uh, minimally overlapping, I should say, um, we're able to build the features and capabilities relevant for each side, and, and it's successful. I think had we not gone through some of the pain of the, of the Quickster uh, period, that um, we might not even be here today at all. So maybe, you, you know, d uh, modern business theory says you should disrupt yourself, but maybe you guys just did it a little a little too aggressively. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. We were certainly intent on disrupting ourselves. 
and we did it rather nicely. Um, we could have been more sophisticated about it, um, uh, but I think that the 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 piece that many people miss is that is that it was a transition that needed to happen. If we hadn't have done it, um, or if we'd been too timid about it, uh, you know, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. So um, again, to bring us into the modern era, um, in in the in the DVD rental era by mail, uh, you you buy the physical discs. Uh, and you can rent them out time and again to people. But into the streaming era, it's a completely different ballgame. You have to acquire the rights to stream uh, content. And so early on, because everyone thinks that this is an experiment, maybe even you guys think it's an experiment, it's not super expensive to get these rights. But then as the streaming takes off, and as we've talked about with the Quickster you're seeing this is the business going forward that becomes more expensive. And then that's the reason why you realize you need to go into creating your own content, right? Yeah. And um, I'm going to have to put uh, a, a big caveat on this, that, that uh, um, my role as, as the uh, technology guy, chief product officer by this point, um, of course, uh, the technology really had relatively little to do with the content. Ted well, Sarandos you know is the Let architect me... of, of the content stuff, and so he's he's the guy who you should probably do a follow up episode with. And uh, well, obviously, would <laughs> love to. But in the future. you know what? Let me tee it up. Though I actually was doing that to tee it up to a technical question, which is that you know we talked that early on you were uh, coming up with recommendations and things like that, and you guys used personalization and data very early on to help the business, but from the technical standpoint, once you get into streaming, you have loads more data about what people are actually watching, about what they're actually interested in. Um, so maybe talk about that, about how once you're in the streaming era, like what you can learn about user behavior uh, potentially transforms what, what Netflix can do. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Um... The recommendation stuff we started out with in 1999 and through the DVD era was was uh, uh, it was important, uh, but it was it was uh, kind of the, the sweetener on top of the of the system. We we didn't have we didn't have great feedback as to um, uh, what people had watched and enjoyed. We knew what we'd sent them. We, we we had hard data on which discs we'd sent, but we didn't know which they'd, they'd actually watched and which ones they'd enjoyed. And so right from uh, 1999-2000, we built the, the star bar, the five-star thing that's become such a popular internet uh, meme, um, because we needed to collect data. This was a terrible movie. This was a wonderful movie. And this was an okay movie uh, to be able to feed back. And we collected a lot of that. At peak, we probably collected uh, 5 million um, uh, ratings a day, but uh, still relatively small compared to the shipping volume. Um, and if people didn't give us ratings, then it was very hard to predict accurately for them. But with streaming, you actually have much better data. You see uh, which titles people really engaged with and which ones they watched a few minutes of and then turned off again. And so that... that uh, uh, quality enjoyment data is actually probably better than, than the, the, the star data. The star data tends to be viewed as, as was this a high quality movie, whether or not I enjoyed it. Um, 
uh, you know, so maybe it rates production value and sort of perceived depth of the of the story rather than enjoyment value. Like um, you might, you might, with, you might give, say, I don't know, King's Speech five stars because you know it won Best Picture, but maybe you really didn't like it, and maybe you didn't even finish it. But now with streaming, you can see, oh, they they would tell us it's five stars, but they stopped after minute twenty. Exactly, and and the the two examples from the era that that I like to. Uh, to, to use for that, uh, you know, Schindler's List and Hotel Rwanda, both really good movies, mm-hmm. but not necessarily what you want to watch tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really uh, dark, deep, provocative, thought-provoking things. But, uh, you know, tonight I just want something that I can lean back to and enjoy. And so, yeah, the, 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 the streaming viewing data sort of gives us that um, enjoyment factor, which is much more valuable, and it gives us complete coverage, too. Um, and so... Uh, we're able to use that pretty effectively to to drive uh, suggestions and recommendations. And the the, the search feature um, on our system uh, drives a small amount of viewing. Um, it's in the teens percent, I think. Um, uh, and search itself has a little bit of, of, uh, of recommendations and suggestions built in. If there's ambiguity, if you've got a small number of letters entered. And we know roughly what you might be aiming for. But uh, everything that's not search has a strong component of, of uh, uh, personalization and predicted enjoyment built in. And so it's it's true to say that uh, more than 80% of everything that people watch on Netflix is influenced to some degree um, uh, by the, uh, the personal taste information that, that we've brought to bear and that delivers a lot of value for our members and a lot of value for us in terms of, of making Netflix a sticky place, a place that people come back to every night. Well, and also helps you figure out um, now at, that you are producing your own content, uh, what would be the content to produce that, that your users would actually want to view? True, although there's, there's an assumption there that I want to challenge. Okay. We, we, don't, we don't write stories by data. Mm. Um, stories have to be organic and intact, and so we trust a uh, producer uh, or a team to to craft an interesting story. But we are able to take the the outline, the the pitch, the casting choices, um, uh, the various decisions that go around that, and plug that in to get an idea of who's going to be interested, um, which helps us to know if this is an economically feasible project. And so. Uh, using the data to make funding decisions is a different game than using the data to, to tune the story, which we don't do. I one more question, and then and then I'll let you go. I've, you've been so generous with your time. Um, I saw I saw you give a talk where you discussed how um, not only are you, you know, everything's in the cloud. You're, you're delivering content uh, streaming, but as part of the production process, as you're producing content. You're also using some of this uh, uh, cloud technology and these cloud services to to help streamline production as well. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an aside that I have to make here. You give me a, an, an introduction. Everything's in the cloud except our CDN. Um, Open Connect is, is a oh, yeah. another important piece of the story that, that, that we haven't talked about at all. And, and we should I, say uh, we should say CDN is is Content Delivery Network. Sorry, go ahead. That's correct. So in order to make streaming work effectively, um, you don't want to be streaming, particularly with streaming to 192 and a half countries around the world. 
the half of uh, Ukraine without Crimea. Um, you've got to get the content close to the subscriber. You don't want it traveling um, on uh, fiber optic pipes under the ocean. Um, uh, you know, the kinds of filings we do, that doesn't work. And so we have uh, content servers uh, all over the world in thousands of locations. In many cases, actually installed um, into ISP's infrastructure, and they're right at the head end or right in their systems, so that there's the minimal of the minimum amount of of quote internet uh, structure or backbone that, that's traversed by the, the media bit. Um, and we put a lot of effort into building uh, very small, very power efficient, um, exceedingly effective delivery devices that can stream. Uh, you know, most of 100 gigabits a second out of a relatively small footprint. And uh, a stack of those things um, installed in an IX or an ISP's uh, infrastructure is, is really key to delivery. And that's that's been an important piece of building to the scale we've got today. Um, uh, so I, I, I certainly want to mention the, the, the team that's been working hard on that because mm-hmm. um, that's an important piece of the story. Um, uh, remind me your, your, your real question. I'll come I, back to, uh, uh, to close out on the right topic here. Th- that I saw you mention that you're using things like the cloud and, and, and things like that uh, on the production side so that um, it's, it's easier for your actual you know, original productions to, to do things Got more it, efficiently. Right. Yeah. So, yes, we're, we're, we're producing this year uh, 400 original titles um, for, I think, a 1,000-plus hours of content. And, and that makes us one of the bigger uh, production studios in the world. Um, and, of course, there's lots of opportunity for IT to support a, an operation like maybe making a series or making a, making a movie, um, all the way from uh, the planning stages where we're receiving uh, pitches and scripts and we're soliciting uh, opinions and, and getting feedback and, and where we're uh, making decisions and working through legal contracts and planning and scheduling and uh, booking uh, cost and sets and renting equipment and delivering it to the locations. Um, all of this stuff is an opportunity for uh, IT to make it more efficient, more effective. And then into the production phase, um, where we want to be able to capture the daily shoots, um, uh, bring them home for uh, people in, in uh, maybe in another country, be able to see the daily takes and, and see what's going on. Uh, through to the, the editing, um, we subtitle in 20-something languages, 23 or 25, I think. And we dub in many languages. And so the, uh, the the localization and the and the post production work. Um, so all of this stuff is an area where um, rather than uh, acquire or, or uh, license for the conventional uh, tooling to do this stuff, it's an area where we've chosen to invest in building cloud based technology. And the vision that that, that I've I've uh, uh, tried to brings to life here, which is still a few years from being anything like tangible yet, is that there's kind of a dashboard of, of, of a production that uh, a, a director or a producer can carry around on their, on their mobile device that they can see yesterday's tapes and today's scripts and 
and the planning for tomorrow. They can make sure that everything's lined up, and they can look to see what did they do last year in the previous season, and then what's going on on this other set. And um, you know that it's it's the dashboard that brings the data from all the phases of the current production and all the acquired knowledge from all the other productions that we've done in, in a way that provides us with, that will provide us when it's fully realized with a, an amazing tool uh, to uh, a very efficient uh, production of original content. And, and so I think that's a, that's a really exciting possibility that we're investing in heavily at the moment. Hmm. Well, uh, Neil, I believe you uh, you are leaving Netflix in July, is it? That's correct. So I, my my last question is really simple, and um, if it's too personal, you can be vague. But um, what are, what are your plans for um, life post Netflix? I've been uh, continuously employed since I was sixteen or seventeen years old, and I'm going to take uh, a bunch of months, maybe a year or two, uh, to just go do the things that that. Uh, 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 appeal, um, uh, travel. I'm, I'm a big outdoors person. I, I love to bike and kayak and climb mountains. And um, I'm going to be doing all of those things in, in, uh, here in my home, California and around the world. And that's going to be fun. Um, uh, I'm expecting, though, that, that at some point I'll want to get back into building something. Um, and uh, I find at this point there are sort of three areas that, that, that are particularly appealing to me. Yeah. Um, uh, the area of, of uh, precision medicine, um, so healthcare, um, augmented by technology and big data and machine learning. Um, the area of education. Um, I think that, that uh, learning is going through a big transformation and we, we need to make it much more effective and, and affordable and, effective and, and available. And then alternative energy. Um, I feel like uh, the, the opportunity to apply technology to solving some of the, the, the climate crisis uh, problems is, is a good one too. So those three areas are particularly appealing to me. Um, I, I don't know if I'll find something that's, that's uh, compelling and where I can make a difference, but that's something I'd like to imagine is in my future. Yeah, well, good luck if you do uh, one or, or maybe all three of those things. But uh, Neil, Neil Hunt, thank you so much for coming on the show, um, giving us just a wonderful background history of, of Netflix, of, of the streaming product. Uh, but also thank you for sharing uh, a really, really fascinating career. Well, I thank you for the opportunity. And I would be remiss if I didn't note that uh, there's, uh, about 2,000 people here now at Netflix and, and thousands more who have worked with me and around me and on my team and on my, and my care teams over the past 18 years that I've been at Netflix. And um, it's been an extraordinary experience, and I really am very fortunate to have worked with so many smart and sharp people. And, and uh, that's been great, so I thank them all as well. You know who you all are if you're listening to this, and uh, um, you did it with me. Thank you. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. 
As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.